Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. This week on our panel, we have Jillian Rowe. Hello. Jonathan Hall. What's up? Will Button. Hello, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And uh, this week, we're talking about this, excuse me, this minimum viable CD that Jonathan pointed out to us. And yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and plug it right now. It sounds like he's lining up somebody who helped write this on his podcast. So do you want to give us a link to your podcast and that way people can keep an eye out for it? Absolutely. Yeah. Where do people find it? Just Oh, just... yeah. Sorry. I, I'll give you a link. Uh, yeah, uh, brain fart. Um, can I say that word on, on this? Uh, yeah. Go to podcast.jhall.io. There you go. All right. Sorry. Yeah. We'll keep an eye out for that and then we'll link to it when it comes out. But yeah, it was interesting because Jonathan, you, you kind of mentioned that there are things in here I like and, you know, things that I want to say. I'm looking at it and going, I've worked at places that don't do enough of this stuff and, you know, it sucks. I'm just curious, like, is, is there a story behind this that you're aware of? It sounds like this was put together at a conference or something. Yeah. So my understanding, of course, and uh, I haven't spoken in detail with anybody who's involved in this. I just read it because I saw it on LinkedIn. Uh, but my understanding is that uh, there was a DevOps conference a few years, a few weeks ago, and a bunch of the people who have signed on to this got together in a room. I guess they did a the, the Agile Manifesto style organization group, <laughs> got together and wrote up their own manifesto of sorts. And I believe that their their goal was to put some clarity around the term continuous delivery and continuous deployment because these terms are thrown around a lot in the industry, especially, I believe, in large organizations where it's it's a buzzword used maybe to, to attract talent or to look cool, but they aren't necessarily doing things that might be considered legitimate continuous delivery. You know, maybe they're, they're not doing... You know, maybe they're, they're, they have feature branches that last for weeks or months, for example, which doesn't really fit the definition of continuous. And now I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that I think that's the angle they're coming from, and I think that's I think that's really valuable uh, to try to. I mean, we we have so many words in our industry that you ask six people what they mean and you get 20, 20 answers. Words like agile and DevOps, even. So I think I think this mm-hmm. is trying to crack down on that sort of vocabulary. N- nuance, nonsense, whatever. So I, I think it's a great initiative. I think that's where it's coming from. Nice. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Yeah, I think some of that's in the FAQs as well, as far as like how they put it together and stuff. So yeah, so should we just start at the top and talk about continuous delivery? 
or are there partic- is there a particular place that you want to start? Because well, I, mean, I have thoughts about all this. Minimumcd.org for anybody who wants to follow along. Just go to minimumcd.org and you can read what we're looking at and, and talking about. Yeah, why don't we start at the top and we can just work our way down it? It's not that long. It's it's even shorter than the Agile Manifesto. If you consider the the, the twelve principles too, it's it's a quick mm-hmm. read. So yeah, they did that because CD Baby was taken. <laughs> <laughs> all right was it is it taken yeah cd baby is, is. Der- uh, Derek sivers company uh, anyway or was anyway so yeah so where it says uh, i kind of want to start with just kind of the the what preamble for lack of a better word um where it says that they want to introduce new practic- practitioners in a consistent way they want to discuss engineering practices that comprise cd and help others improve current capabilities do you feel like it delivers I think that remains to be seen, honestly. Maybe I'll just step out on a limb and, and, and express my biggest concern with this document right at the beginning, because mm-hmm. I think it addresses that question. My biggest concern with this document, and I know, I know this is not the intention of the people who put it together, but my biggest concern is that people may implement this minimum CD and stop. They may do this, say, all right, we're done. We have a check mark. Now we can stop improving. And I, I hope nobody ever does that. If they do, then it won't be delivering the, the answer to answer your question. Gotcha. But aside from that, if people use this in the way it's intended, I, I think I think it could be. I mean, there, there's a few, I have a there's a few of the points that I, I I have questions about. But by and large, I mean, it talks about using continuous integration, using a build pipeline. Completely mm-hmm. agree with both of those. Immutable artifacts that humans can't uh, can't modify after you've built them. Uh, that's that's essential. So yeah, I. I in broad strokes, I absolutely agree with it, with everything that it says here. Cool. Well, let's just dive in then, because, yeah, so continuous delivery. Let's assume that people need kind of a baseline understanding for, of this. How do you all think about continuous delivery, and does it line up with what's in this manifesto? I don't want to be the only one talking, but... <laughs> Will, I'll, sounds I'll smart. Jump in or there. Jillian. <laughs> I'll, I'll jump in there and say... Don't you say worry, I can so talk can forever, too. Me. I was just, you know, giving you a moment to shine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I'm looking at this, and I'm wondering, uh, like, what kind of industries the people who wrote this are maybe from? And, like, the first thing that sort of stood out to me is, I agree with all these things in principle, but what if you're in, in, in an industry where you have to have some kind of human in the loop? Like, for example, like, like I talk about bioinformatics absolutely every show, because that's what I do all day, every day. You know, you have to have a human in the loop there. We do not want people releasing any manner of genomics or medical information whatsoever without a person being there or without it being verified in a lab or something like that. I am a little bit, I suppose, like both afraid and really excited by the robots as our overlord kind of future that I sort of see with this document. So uh, I don't know. Yeah, I had another one, but I had another point in there somewhere. So that's kind of where I'm at. But yeah, in terms of just sort of overall, you know, CICD, the idea is that you should set yourself up with a framework that allows you to iterate and make changes. And to me, that's like what CI and CD is all about. I want to be able to say mm-hmm. like, hey, I want to introduce this feature or this change or make an upgrade to some library or whatever. And I have enough kind of like tests and check marks and so on and so forth that give me some degree of confidence that when I make this additional iteration or change or feature, that everything is okay and it's going to work. And, you know, it's not all going to go up in flames or the site isn't going to go down or something like that. And I know there's a lot more to it. And I'm glad that there are other people thinking about all the other things that go into it. But yeah, for me, I mean, that's that's kind of it. I think there's a subtle difference here that could be a, a misconception that I've spoken with multiple people about 
in the definition of continuous delivery. And I think the distinction there is continuous delivery doesn't necessarily mean automated delivery. Kind of tying back to what I think what you were referencing, Jillian, we can do continuous delivery and have our changes continuously staged and ready to go to production. But that doesn't mean that they're going to automatically go to production. You can still have like that that final checkpoint where someone signs off on it or determines, you know, hey, there's a better time of day to do this for whatever reason. I agree with and that might be another one of my concerns with this is I, I feel like it focuses too much on the how things are accomplished rather than what is accomplished. And in, in my view, continuous delivery is an end result and how you get there should matter less whether you're using honestly whether you're using trunk-based development or not maybe shouldn't matter i I don't know how you would do effective ci and cd without trunk-based development but i feel like we shouldn't bog ourselves down in those details if you can prove to me that your other method delivers continuously then fine that would be my approach if i was writing a document like this yeah and to, to kind of pile on here so my current employer i mean part of our process is yeah you push to master but you push to master through a PR. And so somebody else is going to review your code before it goes in. And so there is human intervention, right? Before you actually get the deployment, somebody's looking at it and going, this part's not a good idea, or this code could be cleaner, whatever, right? But but there is kind of that human interaction in the middle of the process that is sort of a last opportunity for somebody to raise a red flag or point out an issue before it goes to production. I don't yeah. think this explicitly prohibits that. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this yeah. part under continuous integration, and it says that work is integrated to trunk at minimum daily. Work has automated tests before merged to trunk. It doesn't say anything here that no human does review. I think they're probably assuming, or at least some of the people who are involved in writing this were assuming pair programming based on the way that some of this is worded. But I don't think there's anything here that says you can't have humans doing review, even with pull requests or or however you choose to. Well, I want to argue with that just a tad because I like doing that. There is this idea of having an immutable artifact. And to be clear, I'm not even totally sure what that means. But it says no human changes after commit. And I can I like I understand where they're coming from with that. But I still just keep coming back to this idea of like, no, you still you still need some kind of human and like I just I can think of so many decisions where you still do need a human and there is still going to be some kind of intervention more than just a check mark so the way I interpret that which uh, I completely agree that this is not worded well like no human changes after commit sounds like I can't squash my commits before I push I emerge to trunk or to, to master or whatever and I don't think that's what they're saying I think what they're saying is that once something has been merged into master that you build an artifact, say a Docker image, for example, and no human should modify that Docker image. If you need to change it, then you have to merge merge something right. into trunk again. And, and I do agree with that, but it's it's ambiguous the way it's worded here, if that's even what they mean. Yeah, that's yeah, the way I, mean, I, I took it as see well, where Jonathan. Coming from, you know, but I, I think part of this is sort of having kind of like an ideal state, which I think is great. You know, I think we should always be talking about what the ideal state is. But there's also kind of, I think the Okay, so what are the steps that we need to take to even get to this state? Because it's unlikely you're going to go from zero to a minimum viable CI, CD. And it might not be the place to sort of, you know, for this document to discuss, okay, what are those steps? But from what I've seen, it's nearly always some kind of human in the loop. And I don't know if I'm just kind of too stuck on the idea of having like specifically data science pipelines where you're working with data rather than code in this. But yeah, what are your guys' thoughts on that? In your situation, Jillian, would you say... 
that even though you have humans involved at this later stage, that you're doing continuous delivery? Or are you comfortable saying, yeah, we haven't we haven't met the minimum viable definition yet? I mean, I would say yes, because it's a data compliance issue at that point. You have to have a human in the loop. Okay, so let's so let's just take kind of a common scenario that I work with where I work with like hospitals or smaller labs where they're getting their genetic screening tests done, which means say I'm in sort of the unfortunate position of having a family history of cancer. I could go into the lab and they could test my DNA to see if like maybe I have some genes for cancer and maybe, uh, you know, there's some treatments that I could do or some lifestyle choices that I should be making or something like that. So then, I mean, the idea with that is that and I mean, again, it's more of a data science pipeline rather than a straight up software pipeline, which which could be why I'm having so much trouble wrapping my head around this. Well, I think, but, I um, think that's great, though. Yes. I mean, yes. But we should stress test this thing, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if it stands up. Yeah. <laughs> so then, you know, the idea is the data comes out of the lab. And then at the end, you get kind of, I mean, like a report. And I think there's been a ton of work, you know, over, I suppose, the last two decades since the Human Genome Project came out to really make this thing as good as it can be. And as much like the computer is making decisions, but the computer can't make every single decision, especially if you have kind of like weird edge cases or if you have a de novo illness or maybe if you have like, uh, you know, most diseases are caused by a mix of factors, all these kind of things. So at the end of the day, you're still you would get like, so say a genetic counselor would be sitting at a screen and they would get that report in front of them. And then based on what they see and on their expertise, they're checking different boxes and saying yes or no, and then delivering that report either usually to a doctor and then sometimes to a patient. So I think seeing like the no human changes after commit, I think of the commit is like, okay, we're pushing this report to, I mean, I don't want to say JIRA, but like kind of like something like JIRA that's sort of like a project management kind of thing with like custom fields and you have uh maybe, you know, like an editorial workflow approval. And then that human does make changes. They can make changes based on based on their discretion, based on um, even the quality of the data, because, you know, that's something we kind of forget about in software is that things exist in a physical space. That's something I that's something that gets me all the time in the lab and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, a human can make that change and they are making a change to what I would see as a commit. But I think that's, yeah. that's maybe much more data, like data engineering pipeline kind of issue rather than software. Yeah, I think I think of it more along the lines of what you're talking about as as the data pipeline and, you know, the underlying pieces that make up that data pipeline. So just to give you an idea, the project that I work on at work, it gathers like venture capital executive compensation data. Right. And then it, you know, it runs through and there's a manual QA process for that data before it gets put into reports and things like that. But the underlying system that enables all that stuff, that should be that I think that's what we're talking about with continuous delivery, right? So it's, hey, we're deploying this app to this machine, we're deploying this database with this structure to this machine, all the infrastructure that that lives underneath it. That's the stuff that shouldn't be changing. And if we are changing the way any of that works, then we need to be committing. But yeah, the rest of it with the data and with the way people manage that and all the workflows that go into it, yeah, that obviously is going to have to be manipulated by a human or by an algorithm or both as part of its process. But all the stuff that we're pushing out, that's the code that enables all that stuff, all that needs to be managed in a repository it should have continuous integration run against it so that we know that it works and that it does what's expected. And then there should be some process for delivering it on a regular basis. I definitely see that. But we call it CICD. And that's that's kind of like what we strive for, even in sort of data pipelines and engineering. Mm-hmm. 
So maybe we need a new term and we need our own manifesto. Maybe that's it. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Manifesto all the things. Exactly. That's my new catchphrase. Oh, man. No kidding. (laughs) But, But yeah. So as far as like deployable artifacts, I mean, I can even see that as like AI models and things like that. Whatever you have that you're deploying out there as part of your process for putting new functionality up. Yeah, I, I agree with the, this piece of it. But yeah, you know, whether you have a human sign off on it, whether you whatever your process is, there should be a process. It shouldn't be too onerous and it should happen on a regular basis. The next bullet point I take minor issue with, it says all feature work must stop when the pipeline is red. What do you guys think about that one? I don't even know what that so, means. Like, what does that mean? Do we all just like run around? Yeah, <laughs> like, so I, I, like, I think this is assuming, panic, panic, this, panic. This is assuming that everybody merges directly to trunk and there's mm-hmm. no there's no pull requests or, or, or feature branches. Uh, although later on, it it does talk about you can't have feature branches as long as they're short lived. I think this means that trunk or master is broken. So everybody stops working mm-hmm. and, and fixes it. Yeah, but it it says in continuous delivery that the pipeline is red and in continuous integration it says that the all, all feature work stops when the build is red <laughs> and so yeah, i'm wondering that discrepancy all right uh, i'm wondering if there is a difference you know if they're trying to specify that you know maybe you have monitoring or something within your setup right and so you have to you have to stop and figure out what's wrong with what you've deployed i don't know mm-hmm. I wonder if yeah, this would say, I, like, don't create zombie features. You know what I mean? Like, oh, this feature is red. Oh, I'll just make a new one. And then you just end up just with, Just put like, it under these... a feature flag. Yeah, you know, it'll be <laughs> fine. Feature 1-2 instead of feature 1-1. And then, you know, I'm of course, I've never done such a thing. But I know people who do something, and then you end up with all these feature branches that just sort of, <laughs> nobody knows, like, what they were about or where they started or anything like that. And it just ends up being a spaghetti cry, CID yeah. or something. Yeah. So, maybe? If they mean that no new changes should be made, could be pushed to, to master, for example, until the build is fixed, I would agree with that. But mm-hmm. I, I don't think that, especially depending on the size of your team, I don't think everybody should literally stop working while while Bob in the corner is fixing his, his broken commit, if, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah I agree with that. That's the way I interpreted it. It's like, if, yeah. if my PR broke production, we shouldn't be merging anyone else's PRs, but... That doesn't mean y'all got to stop working. It means I got to go figure out what I did to break it. So I'm stuck on my task. I can't go do new feature work until I fix Mm -hmm. the things that I broke. But I don't think it should impact everyone else on the team, aside from the fact that they can't currently merge into the main branch until I fix whatever I broke. I would agree with that. Yep, I agree. Yeah, Um, I think that's probably what it what it says too maybe it's just not i think that's probably what it means I, yeah I what it means ambiguous, ambiguous language in some of these points isn't there yeah it's always fun trying to roll back a bug when you find it after you've deployed like eight other things <laughs> right and then it's like that i don't know what you're talking about hmm? <laughs> i've never done that <laughs> I'm, I'm biting back the word liar liar pants on fire <laughs> i broke conda once you know conda the package manager the python one right? yeah yeah i broke that once I'm sorry, everybody. (laughs) So there are two in here that I want to talk a little bit more about with continuous delivery. One is the production light test environment. Ooh, I am here for that. I am I am gonna plus one that. I love that. I've seen so many projects get kind of derailed because oh yeah, you know, they decide we should mock everything out and then mocking out the environment becomes like a new, incredibly aggravating, you know, kind of development workflow that you're trying to create. And it's like, couldn't you just spend the 70 bucks so that we could have another EKS cluster? Like, really? 
So right. Yeah. Yeah. See. So I want that. I, I mean, I definitely want that. I'm always advocating mm-hmm. for that. I, I do wonder whether that legitimately is part of the minimum viable CD, but I definitely agree that it's a goal. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, it comes in so handy if you want to see what it's going to do when you deploy it before you deploy it. We have at work, we have two test environments. We have a preview environment, a staging environment. And the the staging environment is this is going to go to production. And so we are going to deploy it on production plus this and see how it goes. And then we'll deploy this feature. And preview is, and here's all the other half-baked stuff. And that environment is such a pain. But I think that speaks more to the the trunk-based <laughs> development than it does to this. But I, I will say that, yeah, your test environment should look as much like production as possible. And then, yeah, only the things that you fully intend to deploy within a couple of days should go on that. I completely agree with that. Although I, I do wonder if there are exceptions. I mean... What there are always exceptions. Firmware for a pacemaker. I mean, what kind of test like <laughs> production environment can you can you do, right? <laughs> I guess you could have your, you can test it on your dog's pacemaker, but electricity. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have a Leave kitchen knife and some open counter space. Come on over, Jonathan. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is when you're going to regret that cut rate health insurance. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, why does this say test on it? <laughs> <laughs> Am I supposed to pull the duct tape off or is that like how, how does this work? Yeah, it's a feature. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's a feature. No, and the other thing though is like if you're doing like a major upgrade or things like that. Again, this a lot of this goes back to trunk-based uh, development. But you know, if you have a cuz some upgrades, I mean honestly, you upgrade the core library. You upgrade the core library, and then you have to go upgrade all the other stuff that integrates with it. And it, you know, it takes you more than a few days. You may have a separate production-like test environment just for those changes or something like that, sure. where it's not something. Yeah, uh, it's not something we're going to deploy tomorrow. It's something we're going to deploy down the road when we know it's stable. I think that, in my view, the thing that we should focus on here is that the code is thoroughly tested, and that's mm-hmm. part of continuous integration. I feel like the how you test it. I mean. Uh, in practical terms, you need a production-like test environment, but I don't feel like I mean, if you have some situation where you're confident that you've tested your code sufficiently without that, mm-hmm. who am I to tell you that you're wrong? You're wrong. I mean, you might be wrong. You probably are wrong, but maybe you come up with a better yeah. solution than I can imagine. I don't know. I'm always confident. It most of the time backfires, <laughs> but I'm always confident. <laughs> See, that's that other piece, Will. There. <laughs> is, is the rollback on demand piece, right? <laughs> True. I so so when Will, I mean, <laughs> Bob breaks stuff. <laughs> but yeah, I, that has saved my butt so many times. I can't even tell you the rollback on demand. Oh, frick, we screwed this up. So you roll it back. Now, sometimes the changes are not completely easily rolled back. What's the term? Easily rolled back? That sounds right. I'll I'll go with that. And so what you're looking at is you're looking at, okay, you know, we did some data mutation or some database schema manipulation or something like that, right? And so rolling back is more complicated than, oh, use the old stuff. Right. So how do you account for that in CD? 
yeah, do you mean to tell me that there's data in that pipeline? Like that could potentially be changed in almost every industry on the planet now has some kind of data in there. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have good answers for you. Although uh, people are starting to tackle like specifically the data side of these questions with libraries, um, like great expectations and DVC, which essentially you like feed them your data and it comes up with it basically does like unit tests on your data where it comes up with all kinds of assumptions. Like, so say you have, let's just say like a CSV file, you know, or something, some sort of tabular like structure. It says like, okay, these columns are integers and they're sort of between these values. So if say you have something, you know, and all your values are zero or one, and then all of a sudden you have a thousand, it would flag that because it's however many mm-hmm. standard deviations above the mean, stuff like that. And then documents it all in kind of a like human readable format for once again, I'm really stuck on this human in the loop thing. I'm trying to like get past it for the sake of this <laughs> conversation, but it's just, you know, it's hard for me. Um, yeah. And then, you know, and then you get into this sort of what I was thinking about for the next point, but this idea of state and the state isn't always just the application. It's also, uh, yeah, it's the data, it's the database schema. It's like, yeah, whatever else is happening the, there. The, the hard one there is when you drop a column, how do you roll yeah. that back? <laughs> uh, with a database backup, I think is the answer there. Yeah, but uh, good luck doing that on demand, right? I mean, I, I guess you could you could orchestrate that, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. And, and would you say you don't have CD if you don't have your data your drop column database restore automated? I, I wouldn't, but maybe they would. But I think it's worth talking about too, right? Sure. So if you're having a conversation with your team and you're saying, in this contingency, you know, I have this data-focused task that I run, and look, it corrupted half the database. We, we need to have something in place to, to take care of that. Mm-hmm. Do data like, uh, you know, because I don't use them so much, like the database migration tools, you know, like in Python, there's SQL Alchemy and Ruby. There's something I think it came from the Ruby on Rails community initially. Yeah, it's built into I Active Record. But does it take care of this kind of scenario where you're deleting stuff? So say I delete a column and then, oh, no, I want to roll back. Like it wouldn't, it I, might know to restore think... the column, but it wouldn't know to restore the data, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, there's no mechanism for recalling lost data. If it the, drops the column, it drops all the data too. The solution for that is to just don't drop columns until you're absolutely certain that you need them to go away. I mean, if you're, mm-hmm. you're going to rename a column, for example... You don't rename, I guess a rename is, depending on your database, it's usually reversible. But suppose you want to change a column from one type to another and manipulate it some way. Rather than changing it, you you add a new column with a new name and the new format. And then after a month, when you're confident, then you drop the old column. That's that's really the solution. Yep. Uh, but the tools, of course, don't automate that. You just have to be a smart person when you're writing that code. That's... Or just use MongoDB and yeah. don't have a schema yeah. for anything. No SQL solves everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it solves everything except for the problems that NoSQL has. Oh, it has problems too? It, and it scales. The problems scale, scale with your database. Oh, it's yeah. web scale. <laughs> yeah, saying that I'm smart on any given day is like, you know, it's a roll of the dice. Who knows how much sleep I got? Especially like when my kids were young and stuff like that. It was like, yeah, you know, smart, maybe. No, not so much. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't see the corner of the door that I walked through every day and I walked right into it. I, mean, <laughs> I, I figuratively do that all the time. It's like, oh, yeah, I should have known that not to, you know, but we're all human. And I think that's what a lot of this is trying to mitigate as well is, hey, let's have a consistent way to deploy so that we know that it works. Let's have a consistent checkup on our code so that we know that it works. Right. Let's have a consistent method for committing code or infrastructure's code or whatever else, so that we know that we know where everything is supposed to be, 
so that we can verify that it works. I mean, I think that's really what this is about is, hey, now we have consistency. And so now we can have conversations about is what we're doing making sense? Do we need to tweak this? Are we reaching the goals that we have for these systems and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. Do we have confidence that we can make changes? I mean, I think that's uh, that's the biggest thing. Did you guys hear about the uh, the case with the COVID data in the UK where a company that was contracted to collect COVID data and do contact tracing lost a ton of data because they were using a very old version of Excel that could only have, I don't remember how many rows it had, but it was it was not enough. <laughs> like no. It was not enough rows. <laughs> Uh, I felt so bad yeah. for that team because you just know that like it was just some poor team of engineers like sleeping under their desks and that kind of thing. But but yeah, it's like it's very similar principles, right? Like what are what are we doing mm-hmm. to ensure that that everything is kind of running smoothly as it should be? And one of those things should apparently be account, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, Will is confident that his code works, so he's just going to unzip it and it un- or he's going to untar it and rsync it over. And we're all good, right? Right. Have that pipe to load it into the database, like cat, cat, gzip, database. Back yeah, exactly. One, two, three. <laughs> if Will yes, was really confident, well, he would just go. use VI on the server. <laughs> yeah, right? Because that is truly continuous integration, right? Exactly. <laughs> I think we've had that conversation well, before. I think so. <laughs> but then there's... I'm an Emacs guy and my feelings are hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a serverless guy. My feelings are hurt. <laughs> That's fine. We'll just redeploy you with new code. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're short-lived anyways. (laughs) I think there's... We only keep you around when we need you. Sorry, I'll stop. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) I was going to say, I think that that's maybe worthy of including as part of the definition here is that the goal of this is not to say that we're doing the minimum viable CD, but the goal is that we're creating an environment where we have the the confidence to safely make changes. Mm -hmm. And then we can deploy consistently and often. Yeah. But yeah, it all, it all boils down to uh, confidence. Yeah. Cause like once you've tested your rollback strategy a couple of times, I I don't know about you, but I get a little more carefree with uh, my deploys. I'm like, yeah, screw it. Let's do it. I know I can roll back. Yeah. That explains a lot. Right? <laughs> We're cutting this part of the podcast out, right? <laughs> <laughs> there will be some I am on one today. I, I have been self-medicating all morning, so I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> very understanding clients, you know, like, eh, eh, it'll yeah, it'll be fine. We'll fix it later. It was only down for an hour on <laughs> Black good. Friday. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call. And it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then 
We'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. So consistent, continuous integration. Oh, I wanted to touch on the application configuration. Can we? we Oh, go for it. Okay. Yeah. So I'm kind of one, like, again, so it's one of these things I'm looking at and I'm wondering, like, what is this? And then the first sort of uh, counter example that came into my head was something like, let's say I'm deploying a Helm chart. So, you know, so my favorite one is something like Apache Airflow, which has a Python application, PostgreSQL database, and a Redis queue that like are all sort of running as a part of one application. I don't know how many permutations there are on the number of like different ways I could fill in that values file, but it's a lot. So I'm one, like, I mean, I think that this, that that point is kind of touching on that in terms of like, if you have your application and you fill in a config file or some environmental variables or like whatever it is that you're doing with it, you should be tracking that somehow too. I'm not quite sure how that deploys so with artifacts, you, like how that would tell you. follow in. that link, they elaborate a little bit, but they don't clarify your exact question very much. They say well, the term configuration is overused and underdefined. We embrace the 12-factor app config definitions where config is environment specific, i.e. varies by deployment, which I think does address your concern. And application config is internal to the app and does not vary by environment. So they're talking about application configuration, which does not vary by environment. I I guess I need to read up on 12-factor definition a little bit more to understand what that means exactly, because I think of config as the other part. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, which I should do not too. be part of the ad- artifact. But it says, yeah, that was it, that it says deploys with artifact that I was kind of there. And I'm like, do they mean something like... Okay. So again, the helm here, here with they, the Terraform, it saves the state? No, you know that's what I mean? not what they mean. Here, here, no? they, here it elaborates. No, the de- definition of config does not include internal application config, such as config slash routes.rb. So to me that, I mean, it's a .rb file. That tells me it's part of the code, not configuration. Right. But they mean like your internal router configuration for your, your web application. And your SMTP very username password may or may not probably shouldn't be in the code but shouldn't be in the code probably yeah so i understand that to be using julian's example your values file is the artifact right so as long as that's in a repo where you can track changes to it and see the history of it then you're meeting the requirement there my filled in values file though if i change it on the command line it's no longer uh an artifact i guess or it could yeah, be if true. it's part of the yeah. if it's a part of like my make file that I call as a part of GitHub Actions. Yeah, so that was that was the kind of point that got me there. So it's to sort of like I mean I know it doesn't solve this issue, but one thing I've really been liking to do that at least helps is that now I deploy all my Helm charts through Terraform, and then Terraform saves the state, so I can presumably mm-hmm. roll that back to a different lock because that is that is all in there. Mostly, I mean, like, you know, there's always some ways to outsmart it. But if you actually, if you put everything in sort of the Terraform configuration where you have the different sets, then that would be there. So I think you don't have to worry. I I think they're just saying 
I always have to worry. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, I, I as far as this po- bullet point is concerned, I think you're you're in compliance. Yeah. The thing that I'm thinking about is more along the lines of like when I do the Docker build, and it pulls in the environment variables and it sets that up when I'm doing build on my CI/CD or something else, and it goes out and it asks some secure place, "Hey, what are the configs that need to go into this?" You know, to set up my my database connection and my email connection and stuff like that, right? All of that should be tracked somewhere. <laughs> it's not best practice to put it in the code. That's where 12 factor off or 12 factor apps kind of came from was, hey, none of this stuff should be in your code because it opens you up to these other issues. So but that's kind of what I'm reading into it is it could be, hey, I'm gonna go ask yeah, you know, a third party service where I've stored all that information or I'm going to, you know, have it built into my CI CD somewhere where it actually just builds with that information in it or something like that. Or I have a secrets file and the encryption key is not available in development, but it is available in somewhere else where it's encrypted or something like that. Why everybody got quiet. It's awkward. Is the build red? No. (laughs) Everybody stopped developing, just stopped developing uh, conversational features because the build was red. I used to have my users, they would like sort of, be wary of my emotional state based on whether or not my builds were green or red because we were going through like a major, <laughs> you know, like rehaul of a bunch of different packages. And just at any given time, I had like 10 different packages that were building at the same time. And so, you know, people would walk in and like they knew they knew to look at the screen. And then if it was real red, they would just walk right back out. <laughs> wow. So, you know, I need to train, train my kids with something like that. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, I don't think they'd listen to it though. Um, no. Dad's builds red. He might yell at me. So, so yeah, so it, uh, continuous integration, I think we can hit trunk-based stuff in a minute. But if you're not doing trunk-based de- development, you need to, any long-running branches need to be CI'd, in my opinion. Yeah, that, I mean, yeah, I, mean I, I think we my, could. In my view, whether you're using trunk-based or not, you should run tests on everything before you merge it into master. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, if your master isn't fast-forwardable, in the sense that you know you might have you might have conflicts, functional conflicts, not code conflicts. Then you also need to run your tests after merge to make sure that you haven't broken something unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but this says that it has automated testing before merge to trunk. I agree with it, Jonathan. I want the master also. too. Yeah, it says both. So my, yeah. my preference on, on a on a small enough team is to just make sure that master is whenever you merge, you do a fast forwardable merge, not necessarily an actual fast forward merge. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But th- that guarantees that if your tests work before you merge, they will work after they merge, and so you don't have to run the test twice. If you don't have that guarantee, then you need to run it twice. That's mm. that's my opinion. Interesting. Yeah, I think where I'm at at my current job, we merge and then test, and then it'll deploy after it test pass. Like it'll mm-hmm. it'll run the test, and then it'll do the build, and then it'll deploy. Do you not run any tests before merge on my development both? machine? I do. Yeah. Okay. But not in any kind of CI environment. This is one of the points where I, I, I question whether this should be considered minimal. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, I, I can think of small projects where maybe you don't have any automated tests and you don't need them. But... Oh! Oh, no, 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 no don't say that. <laughs> let, let, let me offer my website as an example. I would say I do CD on my website. I'm, I merge. I mean, when, when I'm changing the design, I, I keep it all in Git. I use a static site generator. And I maybe okay, five or ten you. changes a day, and I do actually have some tests, but they're very minimal. They just make sure that my HTML doesn't have broken links or missing images or something like that. 
But I, you know, mm-hmm. I certainly don't run Selenium against my website to make sure everything lines up correctly and, and then all the form fields work correctly and so on and so forth. I don't do that. Can I not say that I'm doing CD? According to this document, maybe not. Do I care? That's another question. Maybe not. But uh, certainly I feel like on a small project like that, or if you're doing a small two-person project and you haven't yet built your automated testing, this goes back to my point at the very beginning. I feel like the continuous CD should be an outcome, not the how, if that makes sense. If you're mer- if you're deploying five times a day and you're testing sufficiently, whether that's automated or not, I feel like you should be able to consider yourself part of the club. Yeah. So my issue is, is like, if you're if you're doing what you're talking about with like a static site generator or something like that, yeah, you don't necessarily need automated tests because most of the time it's pulling in some kind of markup. So you got markdown, you've got, you know, whatever, right? You could even write it in HTML, right? But I mean, effectively, your output is just gonna, it's gonna be what the browser makes it into. And so I don't know that it's really that effective to test that. But where my objection came in was, you know, you got one or two guys, they're working on a Rails project. And hey, it's just a small Rails project. Well, eventually, a lot of those become not so small Rails projects. And if you've been doing this from the beginning, you're going to save yourself a whole lot of heartache later on when you're trying to figure out, okay, I got to test this, what the heck is going on? Or I've got to test this. And this really isn't optimal for testing. And there's a lot of risk in changing the code. I agree. So, I'm so a, do, I'm a do it up front. Advocate of automated testing. I'm a, I'm a huge advocate. Yeah. And I'm, I'm definitely an advocate of doing it up front too. Yeah. So yeah, I don't I don't disagree with any of that. I, yeah. I, if, if I disagree with anything, it's whether that fits the definition of CD. Mm, yeah, I, I think it does. I think you have to have automated testing of some kind. Not for CD necessarily, but for CI. Okay. But and yeah, your, C, your CI could claiming, be, yeah. And they're claiming you need CI before you have CD. So right. by extension, it's the definition of, for them. It's, it's part of the definition. Right. Of but I could also see, for example, like with your static site generator, you could put it through a CI that is essentially just, I run the build script as a build without errors. Uh, that's what I do. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's just kind of a lot of times in software, we need to take a step back and be like, eh, like, are we being reasonable people here? Are we spending a ton of time on something? That doesn't really matter. Like we're saying, okay, something that um, I don't know how easy it is for you to kill your site, but I mean, I imagine if it's a static site generator, it's pretty difficult. Is there really going to be a lot of like consequence if something does get messed up? What is like what is likely to get messed up? Is it just going to be a page or something like that? How much do you well, care? Like, will you just go fix it tomorrow and like go on about your life, or is it really, you, you know, is it really going to impact Ruby things? <laughs> I mean, well, that, but that's that the thing. <laughs> how much does it actually like? How much does the thing that you're building matter? Are you in sort of like a you know like a really rapid development phase where you're just trying out different ideas and you're like, yeah, you know, like I'm okay with kind of going cowboy or whatever on this with the sort of expectation that if this is the idea that I hit on or this is the software that I'm going to build or like this is this is what we're doing, then we'll kind of clean it up later. I've seen that go like both right and wrong. I think in sort of equal equal amounts. So I don't know, but just, yeah, I do think it's worth it to at least take a step back and be like, well, do I really need all this? Because sometimes From I think a business perspective, I agree. I do question whether that defu- belongs in a definition of CD because you could just, you could say that with any project. You know, we, we have this huge million line code, pro- million lines of code project, but it, it's not really business critical. So it doesn't matter if it crashes. So we're still doing CD anyway. I mean, that, that would be, be kind of a silly argument to make, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, but I mean, I think so. The thing is, is that in my experience, at least, the the tech debt that you wind up accruing 
during that initial build is really hard to get rid of. I agree. Definitely. So if if you're going to take the approach of, hey, we'll clean this up once we know that it's got going to get momentum, you've got to be willing to stop and and take care of at least the really horrendous pieces. I think when we're talking about all these corner cases and exceptions, uh, I think the thing to look at is in their, in their sort of preamble, they say, while all contexts, while our context may be different, there are universal practices common in all. So th- mm-hmm. this is really apparently aiming to be universally applicable. Um, so I, I think I do think it's appropriate to examine these corner cases and and see if it's if it applies there. Yeah, uh, I think the, I think the document is asking us to do that. Yep. For me, like I was looking at this and I felt like a really major piece that was missing was this idea of having an incremental approach because again, this is you know like the kind of the ideal state. How many of us are actually starting out at the ideal state? Not very many, and very rarely. So, what's kind of something that you could do to at least move along that path? Or where are some good benchmarks that say, like, okay, so if you're kind of, and it, it might not be something that fits into this document, that's fine. It could be a different one. But I mean, you know, just to sort of think forward, okay, if you're kind of at that stage where you have something, you know, like a Ruby application, and you think, yeah, okay, this is going to be mission critical sort of what are kind of the bullet points that you should be looking at testing. And I don't know if something like this could kind of, you know, adopt that kind of methodology, because maybe it's just too specific for each application. But I mean, I guess I could think of a few things like if you're using uh, maybe a framework that's already has kind of an ecosystem, are you using the generators for that framework? Because oftentimes they will bootstrap things like your tests and even the CI, CD mm-hmm. pipelines, stuff like that. Yeah. So what, what can you have? Is there any middle ground? I think the document says no, but I think in the real world, we're going to say yes. My, my whole business is built on that middle ground. research is that middle ground that's why like i'm kind of hung up on this because when when you're in research you don't usually have like the money to really go and investigate all paths and you don't want when you don't want to like be really perfect and precious about every path because then potentially you're missing out on other paths and i've definitely seen a lot of projects get completely derailed because there will be like a team of software engineers that's like we must elegantly abstract this code base and sit here and argue about integer types until uh, like i don't even know when and then uh, three years down the line do they actually have anything you know that can be used in like a research context probably not and it's research so it's flip a coin whether or not it's going to actually pan out or get used the point is to get something usable so that you can test the idea behind it but uh, I think that's my bias, too. I don't actually care about software or tech that much in and of itself. If I could get robots to write it for me and I never had to write another line of code as long as I live, that would be fine. Yeah. Don't hold that well, tell I, us I, how I you think really most... feel. <laughs> <laughs> I need a I'm going to start crying again. <laughs> in, in my view, the most important thing, this document, these definitions, accepted or not, the most important thing is that you're striving for continuous improvement mm-hmm. in your organization. And, it, and and that was the concern I mentioned at the beginning. If you get to this the point outlined in this document and stop, that's a huge problem. The goal, whether you are in the middle ground or you're well past this stage, the goal should be to always be improving. Yeah. It is useful, though, as a benchmark to say, hey, sure. are we doing this stuff and do we deliver? Yeah. One thing, one other thing I wanted to throw in here with continuous integration, we kind of talked about all feature work stops already. But the, the next point is new work does not break delivered work. To me, that's kind of the whole point of continuous integration, right? Yeah. Is, hey, this works with the other stuff that we are integrating with. That seems like a reasonable request. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think well, we're all I good with that broken statement. PR anymore. Yeah, I, I agree. That's, I... <laughs> this was always me. <laughs> Just when in doubt. 
Yeah, um, if, if you're using CI, but you're breaking people's crap, you're not. I mean, why, why bother with CI? You know, there's easier ways to break stuff. Just don't do CI. <laughs> yeah. So they shortened trunk-based development to TBD, which I thought was hilarious because <laughs> to be determined. But yeah, how do you feel about trunk-based development? I like they originate from the trunk. So there's a statement there, they originate from the trunk. And I like that because then you don't get this like kind of crazy tree pattern where it's like, oh, I have a feature branch. And then I have, you know, a branch from the feature branch. And then there might be another branch from there. And then when you actually go and start to look at like, how are we actually going to integrate this thing back into back into production or master or main or what you're using? It is not straightforward. So I like kind of having that very sort of linear model of one mm-hmm. one trunk, one uh, all branches come from there and no more. So I, I think there's two ways to approach trunk-based development, and, and they try to address both of them here. The one I've been a long-time advocate of is basically what Jillian just described. You, you branch off the of trunk, you make your change, and you merge it back into trunk. You don't do all these branches, and ideally you don't merge main back into your branch multiple times because your branch doesn't live long enough to do that. It lives for a few hours at most, and you merge it back. That's the approach I usually take, and, I, and I, I'm very comfortable with that. And I've worked with many teams that are comfortable with that. The other approach, which I've not, I'm not comfortable with, but there are many who who are s- uh, strong advocates of, is the idea that you literally merge everything. You commit directly to trunk. You make a change. You do Git checkout trunk, and you're on trunk or, or master, or whatever you call it. You make your change, and you commit it and push it immediately. And these people, a lot of these people are, are pair programming advocates. So, you know, there's two people looking at the code. And so the code review stage, so to speak, happens at the time the code is being written. And I think that's where this idea that if the build breaks, everybody stops working <laughs> because you have to fix Trump. Because <laughs> you broke uh, everybody. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there's one point uh, of failure. <laughs> so I, I know that there are teams that are very comfortable with that. Some very, very highly productive teams that are comfortable with that. I am not comfortable with that for the simple reason that I don't like the idea that my automated tests have not run until after it's in, in trunk. Mm-hmm. I prefer to run my tests first. And I, you can still run your local tests, but that's probably not a complete test suite, depending right. on the complexity of your application. I would rather do my automated testing completely before it's merged, even if that merge is automated in some way. I'd rather just do that testing first so that trunk is to the best of human and robot capabilities possible. It is always in a pristine working state. Yeah, I like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, that's cool, um, but it sounds terrifying. Like, oh, I'm just I'm just going to push straight to master. And, you know, it's going to test and hopefully it'll be OK and maybe not. So I don't know. I, I can imagine if you're on a small team with a bunch of. Yeah, I can imagine if you're on a small team with a with, with very experienced developers, that could work very well for you. Talking like a but team I, I of me, s- that's terrifying. <laughs> like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's a good point. I don't trust myself to do that on my own solo projects either. So, <laughs> yeah, I have a few solo projects and that I do that on, but they're the ones that I'm okay if I deploy something or you know put something in that screws it up and then go and fix it so that it'll deploy properly or whatever. As soon as I have one other person involved, we're we're forking from trunk, and yeah, it, it just it just kind of solves a lot of those headaches because yeah, I can commit multiple times to my fork or my uh, my branch, and then run the tests and make sure that it's all happy, and then push it back in. Fork, yeah. So one thing I, I mentioned, for example, like major upgrades and stuff as as possible exceptions to this. Are there other exceptions to why you would want? to avoid doing trunk-based development or conditions under which you would have a longer-running branch that you're integrating trunk into your stuff and then eventually integrate back? I can think of one example, maybe two. 
one open source project I work on, it's a Go to JavaScript compiler. Mm, and we don't use trunk-based development for the simple reason that we have a spec that is clearly defined that we have to follow. And, and that spec is called the Go language. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so every time a new version of the Go language comes out, which is roughly every six months, we need to, we basically create a, a branch at that point. Right. It's broken. And we hack on it until it's working. And then we merge into trunk or, or, or tag mm-hmm. it or whatever. Um, but we, we don't do TBD because we're not developing new features. We're developing against a, a strict spec right. that we, we can't do a partial merge on because we would break everybody else. So that, that's one example. It's a, it's clearly an, a corner case. Most projects don't work like that. Yeah, that makes sense. I think long running mm-hmm. branches, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to hammering on my point here of data in the loop. Sometimes you have to go find stuff out and it takes time and then you have to come back and like approve it. Mm-hmm. So if you have some kind of decision that's not a human or that's not like a computer decision, rather like these tests ran, yes, no. I just think there are like human reasons why for some reason you would need to have a branch open for some time. Yeah. I need with- to pay my AWS bill being one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one one option that I really like for this is um, using feature flags, right? So if I have something in there that mostly works that's incomplete that's not going to impact the entire system for everybody you know i can turn it on for me i can turn it on for the other developers maybe turn it on for some beta testers and let them kind of see and feel and use it right and so i'm getting real feedback from it without turning it on for everybody else and and that helps mitigate a lot of this stuff but it still allows me to push my stuff into the trunk and deploy it and let somebody tell me what's wrong with it. Definitely. And I, I definitely have situations like Jillian just said, even on projects where we're doing trunk-based development, I still occasionally have a, a branch that lasts for three weeks or something. You know, I, I check it out, make a couple changes, and I'm like, actually, I don't know if I want to do that, or I need to go get some inf- information from a customer, or whatever the situation, and it sits there. And and then I get back to it, and I either rebase or I merge uh, from, from trunk before mm-hmm. I continue. So, you know, there, there are exceptions. I mean, I, I imagine even people who do this commit directly to trunk have exceptions occasionally. They, they yeah. start to write something and they realize, oh, wait, let me stash that and I'll get back to it in a week. So yeah. I'm, I'm sure there are always exceptions. Yep. Cool. So you're going to sign it now? <laughs> let me let me have my chat, hopefully, uh, with uh, some of the, the authors first and then I'll decide. Yeah. I, I mean, overall, sign it anyway. Yeah. Overall, I like it. I think there does need yeah. to be some clarification on it, but. Agreed. Well, anything else we want to bring up about this uh, minimum CD? Yeah, Jillian, let us know when the data science version comes out. We want to see that one, too. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there will be one. There's always, like, at any given time, at least two paths of everything uh, for, I don't know, just for stuff. Like, there's one, you know, for creating Helm charts. There's chart press out of Jupyter Hub, And then there's just, you know, the way that everybody else makes Helm charts. I don't know. There's always something. Yeah. I didn't realize the default way was broken. I, I just do it the, the, the normal way. I think we just like reinvent. I like, I don't know. I think it's just a hobby of like the data scientists out there. We just <laughs> like making, we just like making stuff up. It was a thing in bioinformatics for a while. Everybody would just make like new file types that were only used in like one very particular place at one time, <laughs> but it was a completely new file type with like its own spec and everything. Have you seen Agile 2? Reminds me of the same sort of thing. I haven't. There's an Agile 2 manifesto now. Hmm. Soon we'll have DevOps 2 and CD2 and minimum viable CD2 and then 3. Who knows? It's gonna I'm going to do my own. Furious. Yeah, it's going to be DevOps 3000. I'm just going to skip a whole bunch. <laughs> <laughs> 
Just you have Vin Diesel and uh, The Rock at the opening DevOps conference. That's, DevOps that's right. Team point Oof, nailed it. <laughs> I am kind of wondering, though, like, what's going to happen with this stuff when uh, some of these, like, data versioning tools come out. And, you know, as much as I sit around and complain about, like, having 80 million different file types, I do think those days are coming to an end and everybody is kind mm-hmm. of uh, coalescing on, like, a few different file types, except you guys that use MongoDB, like, we we don't know what you're doing over there. <laughs> but, you know, at least in the data science, it's you know it's tabular data or it's something like mm-hmm. X-Ray, which is like it can be tabular or it can be like a dictionary type thing. But it has a schema like you have to have a schema right. there or something like HDF5. And if we've all kind of settled on these things, you have to have like a specific sort of layer of accessing everything. And then are we going to have some kind of like open API spec for data that's going to allow you to do kind of like CICD with these data pipelines because I think it's becoming more and more relevant. I mean, how many yeah. people even, like, I can't even think of any projects, even just the people that I know have worked on that have not incorporated data in some way. True. Yeah. Depends on the project. I mean, if it's a library or something, you know, a, a tool that isn't a full-fledged application, maybe not, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to push this to picks though, because I have to get off in about 20 minutes and I want to make sure that I have time. So... Anyway, I think this was really interesting. I'm really curious to see, Jonathan, how your interview goes with uh, some of the guys that came up with this. So let us know when that's out and we'll shout it out here. But let's do picks. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Uh, Jillian, do you want to start us off? Sure. So I found out about a new app. I don't know, I guess like over the summer, because vacation is one of the few times that I read fiction called Webtoons. And I, don't, I just really like it. Apparently, people read comics on the internet these days, which is something that I didn't know until a few months ago. But it's just really fun. It's like, uh, it's pretty light reading and like the chapters are pretty short. So it's something, you know, like if I want to read before bed, but my brain is just not having that. I'll just I'll just pull up webtoons and just kind of go through those stories. And they're really nice. Like I can't believe the production qualities on these things. Some of them, if you go to the end, they have the credits and they list like a whole team of people, which I also just think is really cool because they're all like full most of them are like full color, just just really nicely produced comics. And I just think it's really cool that all this like content is being produced by people and there's not really any kind of middleman. You know, you don't have to go to a publisher or anything like that. People can just put it out there and other people can read it and hopefully contribute it and support to it. But yeah, Webtoons, go read go read comics if you need like short stories. Awesome. Sounds like fun. Will, what are your picks? So based on what Jillian said, I'm changing my pick now because a couple of weeks ago, I stumbled across this app called Libby. And so what Libby does is it allows you to use your existing library card to check out ebooks from your local library for free. And I just thought that was really cool. And and the quality, it's very good quality on the ebooks in there. You know, it's not like a, a PDF that someone stood over the scanner at the local library and saved. You know, it's it's legit quality. And I thought that was really cool because it's a way to to read a bunch of ebooks, which I do, and then also support your local library at the same time. Very cool. Uh, Jonathan, what are your picks? Cool. So I'm going to reiterate the the pick I gave at the top, the, my podcast, which we'll hopefully talk about this topic more. Um, it's called Tiny DevOps, and uh, the URL is podcast.jhall.io. Also, I'd like to 
to pick Hugo, the, the web framework I mentioned that mm-hmm. I use for my website. It's it's fun. If you've ever used Jekyll, it's a similar concept. It's it pretty slick. Static, static HTML stuff for you, but it has full templating support. Their website is gohugo.io. They claim to be the world's fastest framework for building websites. I don't have any idea why that matters for a static website. Um, <laughs> since, but, but hey, it's a good tagline. Cool. <laughs> That's nice. my pick. I'm going to throw out a couple of picks. So by the time this goes live, I will have moved top end devs over to a new uh, system. Devchat.tv will all forward over to that new system. The system that I'm using to put that together, I'm actually using uh, the app platform on DigitalOcean, which is kind of like Heroku or some of the other push to get to deploy kind of things. I don't have CI on it yet, I'll admit. <laughs> but that's kind of the next you stage. I want to host your own websites. Like you're way less lazy than I am. I won't do that. Well, they they have an automatic detect what this app is, right? So it says, oh, it's Rails. I know what to do with Rails. The problem I had with it up until literally this morning was that it wouldn't load in the right tasks and things that it needs in order to run. And it turned out that their platform isn't cool with uh, Bundler 2.2. So I had to roll back to 2.1 and then it worked fine. So I just had to build my gem file lock with a different Bundler. Anyway, that's way more information than people needed to know, but I got it up and running. It'll list all the podcast episodes and things like that. But I'm going to pick the app platform I have a discount code somewhere. So go to the show notes and you'll be able to get it. And then, yeah, as far as the rest of it goes, um, I've started doing board game picks. So I'm going to pick a board game every week. There were there were guys that on some of the other shows did like beer picks or things like that. But I don't beer. So I board game. The one I'm going to pick is called Viscounts of the West Kingdom. And it is it's a one to four player game. It's kind of a mix between like deck building and task worker management. So if you've played Scythe or something like that, then, you know, it ha- kind of has the worker management piece to it. But you have to build your deck up in order to get the resources you need in order to do the things. It's a little bit more involved than most board games I play. And so I'm just going to put that out there because some people really don't like kind of the complex setup and run of the of these kinds of games. This one wasn't so egregious that it was painful, in my opinion. Some of them are really, it's like, okay, I played this twice and I spent more time t- uh, putting all the pieces back in the box than I did playing the game. This is not one of those games, but it is rather complicated. So I'm just going to throw that out there. Super fun game. And so I'm going to shout that out. And then lastly, um, I did mention top end devs. So as we move things over to top end devs, there are a couple of things that you probably ought to know about. First of all, I'm going to be running some master classes. Most of them are going to be career focused. So how to find a job, how to level up, how to stay current, things like that. All of those will be available. I think I'm going to do them for free if you come live. But if you want access to them after the fact, you have to get a membership to Top End Devs. And then I am looking for authors to help me build out more of the content. So if you're interested in that, and I planned on reaching out to the panel here before I just went off on the show, but that didn't happen the way that I wanted. But the idea is, is that we're going to have kind of three approaches. One is going to be the hour to two hour masterclass or tutorial, right? So it's like, hey, I need to pick up this thing. I don't want to do the six hour course. 
so you can go pick it up in an hour or a half hour, however long it takes, right? Um, I do want to get the more in-depth courses. So that's another option. And then finally, I'm looking for people for each of the audiences that we have. So this one's DevOps. We also have Ruby and JavaScript and a bunch of others and careers. And I'm starting a careers podcast to go with that content because it seems like that's what people are asking me about. But they're going to have two episodes that go out per week. They're going to be out 15 minutes and it's basically going to be a here's how you do this thing, right? So it may be, here's how you set up your Docker file, or here's how you quickly build a Helm chart, you know? And then the next one might be, here's how you do the thing with your Helm chart, right? Or here's how you set up Minikube on your laptop or stuff like that, right? Um, And just go in as deep as you have to in order to manage that stuff. So, and then as a member, you get access to all of it, right? So you'll be able to watch the series, you'll be able to grab the tutorials, or you'll be able to do the long form courses. The other angle on that though, is I'm creating a Slack community around it as well. And that's going to give you access to all of the live stuff and things like that. So come check out Top End Devs. Uh, That's what's going on. I am running a pre-launch special up through Black Friday. And then we're going to launch with courses and content on January, the beginning of January. I was going to say January 1st, but I might be sleeping in. So it might be January 2nd. But that's what we're looking at. for all of that stuff. If you want coaching in the meantime, topendevs.com slash coaching. And uh, yeah, anyway, I just want to put it out there because I want people to be able to sign up for the pre-launch if you're interested in kind of having ongoing training like this. So anyway, that's what I got. So cool. Big plans. Yeah, always. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. And yeah, it's good times. Until next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.